Um, I have been inspired uh, within the last 15 minutes uh, to speak on a subject uh, as an introduction that I have not prepared for, and I just believe it's God speaking to me through the Holy Spirit. And if you were in class yesterday, uh, it's, the, it's the verse that I spoke on yesterday. Please uh, pardon me if, if, I, if it seems repetitious to you, but for some reason God has laid it on my heart that there's some somebody in this group that needs to hear this message. And so it will only be about 10 minutes before I get into the study in Luke, but I want to talk to, to you about it. It's Luke, it's uh, John 17, verse 23. John 17, verse 23. And I've come to believe through my study of Scripture that this chapter, it's called the final discourse of Jesus. This chapter may, in fact, be the most important chapter in the Bible, it may be the greatest chapter in the Bible, certainly along with Romans chapter 8. Uh, it is an incredible uh, chapter as Jesus is actually praying to the Father for us. And so I, when I, I recommend it to you that when you get a chance, go back and read it. It's the real Lord's Prayer because it's the prayer that Jesus is making to the Father for us. He is speaking to God on our behalf. And so if you look at verse uh, 23, we'll actually start with verse 22. And Jesus is saying to, to the Father, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I want you to underline the last part of that verse that says that you have loved them even as you have loved me. And why is this so critical to us? It is because Jesus is indicating there that the Father, that the Father, because we have accepted Jesus Christ, and have become one with Jesus Christ, and have become effectively brothers with Christ, that God the Father loves us in the same way and in the same degree that he loves the Son. Now, if your head doesn't explode at this, I don't know what else to say to you. If you don't realize the, the magnificence of the love of God, that he is saying, he is saying here, Jesus is saying that that's the extent that God loves you just the way that he loves Jesus. He loves you. Now, here's the point of this. The Greek word that, that I'm translating here is pathos, P-A-T-H-O-S. And the translation for that word is uh, just as or in the same degree. So there's no misinterpretation here. God loves you and us in the same way that he loves Jesus Christ. This is an amazing thing to understand as you go through this world. This means this, that when you get a bad diagnosis or some doctor tells you something bad or your stock portfolio deteriorates or family relationships fall apart and instead of becoming despondent and despairing and saying that God has abandoned you, why would a God who loves you in the same way that he loves Jesus Christ, abandon you, all right? And here's the other thing about God. He is infinite. He is infinite, and he is eternal, and he is unchanging, unchanging. 
And so even though we can't come to terms with this, it's important that you understand that. That is the nature of God. And so the problem for us as human beings is that we look at God and we think that God loves the same way that we love. And here's the thing, your love is partial. You only love when somebody loves you back. You love somebody when they respect you and like you, and then all of a sudden you like them. You only love people that are, that are like you, that are speaking like you, that dress like you, that, that embrace the same cultural things that you like. Then you know what? You like those people and maybe then you love them. But here's the thing, and I was saying to some of the brothers this morning, here's our love meter. All of a sudden, if you don't quite love me back and you start changing, all of a sudden that needle, guess what? Starts tilting down. Got it? Starts tilting down because that's the nature of humanity. Why do you think marriages fail? Because human beings can't love the same way that God loves. Because when, in our humanity, we have this partial aspect as to how we love. And, and it infects everything about us. But God is eternal. He is infinite. He is unconditional. And so I want to tell you right now that when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God will love you forever. There is nothing that you can do that will take you outside of the hand of God. I want you to understand something, all right? That means that you've accepted Jesus Christ. This great creator holds you in his hand, loves you forever, is infinite in his love, is eternal in his love, and it will never change in any way. And so here's the thing, and he is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. At the moment that you accept Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ washes away your sins and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, instantaneously everything changes. It changes. And you are now part of the universal brotherhood of Jesus. Can you imagine that God himself, God himself who put Jesus on a cross, who put his own son on a cross to die for us, who loved us so much that he would do that and want to have communion with us, and you now are joined with Christ himself as a brother with Christ, as part of the family of God. What a great God we have. I mean, if you don't give yes, you can clap for that. Really. Jesus. And here's the point of this, folks. This is the message God wants you to give to a lost world. Why do you think I'm doing this whole series on evangelism by Jesus? Why do you think I'm taking this time? Because I want you to understand what God wants. And here's the bottom line. Here's what God wants. He wants you to love the lost in the same way that he loves you, as evidenced by Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. We're not just sitting here to, to, to get intellectual curiosity answered. We're sitting here because we want to have life-changing experiences. I want to give you something today that when you walk out that door, you walk out that door, your life has changed forever. And I want you to give it to other people. The world needs to know that God loves them this way. They don't think that way. The world thinks that God is some stern taskmaster just sitting there waiting for you to step out of line and squash you. That's not God. Our God put his own son on the cross because he wanted to have fellowship with us. He is perfect, infinite, eternal, unchanging, everlasting 
God, the Alpha, the Omega, in every possible way. And he views you with the same love that he views Jesus Christ. The only thing I can do is bow my head and say, Father, I am not worthy. Lord, I am not worthy. Forgive me for not understanding this. Forgive me for not submitting. And now you understand why we talk about the issues of submission. Why we talk about the issues of of asking him for wisdom. Lord, what should I say? Where should I go? What should I do in every aspect of my life? You want to go alone. You want to do your own thing. All right? You think you know better than anybody else. Instead, when you recognize that you have fellowship with God, that you are linked with God in love, that you ought to ask him, Lord, Father, what should I do? Where should I go? What decision should I make in every aspect of, of your life? And so this is not part of the outline. This is not part of the outline, but God put this on my heart to say this because I believe that there's some people in the room who needed to hear this message. This is a message of hope. This is a message of love. I want you to know that no matter what you did, no matter where you were, what your history is about, once you accept Jesus Christ, the slate is wiped clean. Your sins are as far removed as the east is from the west. There is no history with God. There is only future with God. And that's why we come together and embrace Jesus Christ. That's why we love God, because he has forgiven us. And he is changing us. And somebody told me this morning that, they, that as a result of these lessons that we've had, that God has really, really convicted them hard, that they had had strong anti-positions regarding gays, uh, and, and any number of other, other people that don't sit within our cultural purview, right? You know, I love you guys because you look like me and you speak like me, but when I go out there, hmm, I'm not that crazy about those other people. You know, I find it hard to love the liberals. I find it hard to love the homosexuals, the lesbians, the gays. I can't even remember all the other letters. You know, the LGBT, somebody will translate all that. Whatever it is, I find it hard. But here's the thing. God wants you to love them in the same way that he loves you. Your job is not to pass judgment, okay? You're not a fruit inspector. Oh, I like to inspect the fruit, though, because I believe God's called me. I'm very good at making judgments. Yes, that's right. You ought to get on your face, put your face in the dust and say, Lord, forgive me. He didn't call you to judge. He called you to love. He called you to pray. He called you to bring. All right? So I don't know who this message is for, but you'll pardon me for deviating from the outline, uh, but I believe it's the Holy Spirit that's doing that. And so I hope that this resonates with your heart. And so we'll return to the study of today, which is in Luke chapter 15. And... This is an amazing passage that we're going to study here. Uh, In this section of Luke in chapter 15, Jesus will speak of three parables. Three parables, uh, and they will be life-changing parables. And we're going to get an insight into the mind of God and the mind of Jesus Christ as we will see what the kingdom of God looks like. And we will see to what extent God will leave and go out and find the lost, how God loves the lost, and what God thinks about those people who who say they are righteous, 
And we'll see the Pharisees and the scribes. We'll see how they act. And we'll see how God judges, judges that act. But this is a paradigm for us on how we should live when we go out that door into the parking lot and into the greater world. And so I hope it resonates with you. So let's read Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners, and that's in quotes, were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And by the way, when Jesus said 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent, remember that Jesus has also said there is none righteous other than God. None righteous. So the 99 who think they are righteous are not righteous, but they just don't think they need to repent. Continuing on, verse 8, the second parable. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp? Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Can I get an amen on that? And so here Jesus is in a mixed group of people. Uh, most likely he is, he is uh, eating with these people who would be considered lost. He's dealing with the bottom rung of society, the tax collectors, the other sinners. That's who Jesus is spending time with. And the Pharisees, who are the religious elite, who are leading Israel religiously, who are conforming themselves to the law, who worship the law, despise Jesus for that. They repudiate him. He is a very different kind of religious teacher. There is no other religious teacher or rabbi in Israel that acts this way because all the rest of them would have sheltered themselves from this group of people. But Jesus, the very son of God, goes out of his way to spend time with those people who are lost, who, who are at the very bottom of the social ladder. And so he did not stay away from these people, but he embraced them. And every story that I have told you so far is about Jesus reaching out to the lost, you know, beginning with the Samaritan woman at the well, every single case. Uh, and so he speaks words of comfort, words of love, uh, he does not condemn them. You do not see Jesus condemning any of these people. Now, you know Jesus knew that they were thieves and liars, that the tax collectors were stealing. You don't think Jesus knew that? But you don't see Jesus condemning them. Instead, you see Jesus loving them, embracing them, 
giving them a vision of what the kingdom of God is about. Because here's the difference, folks. If you want to change the life of a sinner, you can't change it unless you bring them into the community of believers. You want to bring people and give them hope? Well, don't sit there and condemn them on the sidewalk. Don't leave them on the curb. You have to go and embrace them and attempt to bring them into the community of people. That's why we say you bring them inside the church. The problem is that most of our churches have made it a lifelong uh, emphasis to take people like this and lock the doors and keep them out. They don't bring these kind of people in. Why? They make the congregants feel a little squirrely. You know what I mean? They feel, make me feel a little squirrely. I like to be with people that look and talk like I talk. Now you're going to start bringing these kind of people in. What kind of a church do we have? I would say you have the same kind of church that Jesus established in the first century. That's the kind of church we have. That's the kind of church we need to have. So wherever you are, whatever denomination you are, wherever you go, I urge you to consider this uh, and to alter your life in terms of how you're impacting these kind of people. And so here you see the Pharisees and the, and, the, and the scribes who are present in this public place. And what do they do? They are condemning Jesus. They're criticizing him uh, because he is engaging in that most intimate act that you would engage in in public during that period of time. He's eating. He's eating in public with these sinners. He's spending time with them. And so, you know, I, I ask you yourself, how would you feel if you saw your pastor spending time with one of these bottom-rung people. You saw him. What would you think? You probably would start talking about him instead of recognizing that that's exactly what he should be doing, embracing them with love and respect. And notice how Jesus treats them. You see, that's another lesson. He treats them with respect and dignity. What does that mean? It doesn't mean we elevate the sin He's not sitting there saying, oh, man, you tax collectors are powerful people. I can't believe how much money you make. Wow, it's great that you have this position. No, but he looks beyond the sin into the heart of the human person and embraces that part of humanity as he's looking to bring them into the kingdom of God. He does it with respect, with dignity, with love. You will never change a person unless you show them love and respect. You will never. And so that's the first lesson that we see here. And so here he is going to tell three parables. I've, we're going to study the first two today. Uh, and this first parable is on, on the issue of the lost sheep and the good shepherd. And so, you know, Jesus himself considered, considered himself to be the, the, the final shepherd of Israel. That Israel had been led by bad shepherds, people that didn't really really lead, lead the people of Israel in accord with the will of God, but that God, Jesus had come to be the Messiah and to be the good shepherd. And so what does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd may have a hundred sheep, but if one of those sheep leaves and goes out of the way, the good shepherd will leave the 99 and go and find the one. Now I want you to think about that one. That one most likely is so weak and so lost that it can't find its way back. 
As I read this story and, and, and delved deeper into understanding what this is about, it's clear to me, based on historical evidence, that the shepherds would go out and these sheep would, would be so befuddled and so weak and so bloody that they didn't have the strength to come back on their own. And so there's this picture of the shepherd picking them up, putting the sheep on his shoulders, and coming back with the sheep on his shoulders. That's Jesus. That's your Lord who goes out and finds you in the brush away from God. And all you do is say, Father, help me. You raise your hand like this, I need a savior. And God reaches across eternity to have the shepherd come and pick you up and bring you back. I mean, what a picture this is. This is the picture you need to convey to the world, to understand it. God doesn't hang with the 99 who are okay. He goes after the lost. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. That's what God wants you to understand. And this is, this is what, what it's all about. And so now on his return, he comes back. Uh, and on his return, he is so full of joy that he throws a party for his friends and neighbors to celebrate finding his lost sheep. God throws a party? That's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that there is rejoicing in heaven for the return of the one lost. That when the lost come to conviction and become back in faith, that there is a party in heaven. That's what your God is like. And so that, this, is the, this, is, this is a really strong lesson for me to show what this is about. And, and, it's, and this parable uh, operates on, on several levels. First, it challenges our attitudes and behavior in showing us how we should treat those who have fallen into sin. This is key because it's very easy for people who consider themselves godly, who consider themselves churchgoers, it's very easy for people like us to look down upon people who are caught in a web of sin. And the lesson here is get out of that. That is bad. That's not godly. God doesn't want you to act like that. The last thing God wants you to do is to be pronouncing judgment on people who are lost. Instead, he wants your heart to break. He wants you to reach out in love and demonstrate love, respect, and dignity, and caring. Because here's the thing. When you embrace the lost with love, respect, and dignity, they will see something in you that they've never seen in anybody else. They will see the love of Jesus Christ radiate from you. Because you know what? The average human being doesn't do this. They don't act like this. It's only people that are sold out to Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, that go out and embrace people like this. So God wants our attitudes to change. Make a promise to yourself. Make a promise to yourself today that your attitude will change that you will reach out to the lost, that you will love the lost, that you will give them respect and dignity, that you won't look down, that you won't be a fruit inspector. Instead, you will try to embrace them and bring them into the kingdom of God. Uh, and that's how God wants you to understand that. And it reveals also to us the nature of God's kingdom, a kingdom that is devoted to finding those who are lost and delights in celebration when they come in. You want to see how the kingdom of God is constructed? That's how it's constructed. The kingdom of God is constructed for the very purpose of bringing back the lost. Oh God, forgive me, Lord. Forgive me for how I've acted in the past. 
Forgive me, God, for the way that I may have looked down on people. Forgive me, Lord, for the way that I have passed judgment based on how I've seen people speak or dressed and avoid them. Forgive me, God, when I've acted like that outside your will. That's the prayer that you need to be making as you understand exactly what Jesus is teaching here. Um, and, and we should note on, on this that just as when he had his meeting with Zacchaeus, Jesus effectively announced that he was the Messiah. That he was claiming to be the shepherd, the great shepherd for his people. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 17. Please turn off your phones. Verse 17, as for you, my flock, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. It is not enough for you to feed on the good pasture. Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink and what you have muddied with your feet? That's the good shepherd. The good shepherd loves his sheep. He wants to take care of them. He's concerned about the rams and the goats, those who interfere with his sheep, those who trample them, those who abuse them. That's, that's the real shepherd. That's the good shepherd understanding this role of Jesus. Verse 20, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away. I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, who would be followed by Jesus Christ ultimately one and for all for last and he will tend them he will tend them and be their shepherd the i the lord will be their god and my servant david will be prince among them i the lord who have spoken and so there you have on the understanding this is the role of the shepherd to love the sheep to protect the sheep to make sure that the sheep have good pasture and, and to and to be careful of those who trample the sheep and want to divide them. What a great God we have. And so here you see Jesus claiming clearly in these parables and also through when he spoke to Zacchaeus to be the Messiah, effectively to be the Son of God. Uh, and so in this parable, in this first parable with the 99 and the 1, uh, Jesus effectively now is lulling the Pharisees and the scribes into a sense of false security so that they'll keep on listening. Jesus is the greatest preacher in the history of the world because even as he's preaching, they don't even know that he's preaching. That's great preaching. You understand? That's great preaching. He's speaking so poignantly that they're actually sucked in listening as, as God is beginning to convict them that they don't even recognize it. So now they listen, they keep listening, and they can be confident in this first parable. They can be confident because they see themselves as the 99 good sheep. We are the righteous ones. We are the called. We are the elect. Take any of those biblical words and put it in there. We are the elect. We don't need to be saved. We adhere to the law. And that's exactly the point that Jesus was trying to make to them and to, and to get them to understand exactly where he was going 
with this parable. Uh, and so here's the point. There are no righteous people in this world. None. Only God himself, only Jesus Christ. Don't ever think of yourself as a good person. The problem with a lot of us is that we compare ourselves to the guy down the street. You know that guy. He's abusive, okay? He's a bad husband. He's a lousy father. He's got a filthy mouth. He never goes to church. Yeah, look at him, but look at me. Oh, yeah. I go to church every week. I'm a good husband. I'm a good father. Uh, but do you slander people? Well, yeah, sometimes I do, but, you know, only people that deserve it. <laughs> only people that deserve it. Really, really, do you do that? Uh, have you gone out and embraced the lost? Well, yeah, I embrace, I embrace a lot of people, but I don't like those homosexuals. I draw a line there because I saw Sodom and Gomorrah. I know, I know what it's about. You don't even know why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me tell you, it was evil in, in itself. It wasn't just homosexuality. It was evil in itself. There, was, there weren't 10 righteous people. They raped, they attempted to rape those people that had come in who were, who were the angels of God. So let's understand something. Don't start making pronouncements on, on God's behalf. That's a problem with, 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 with what a lot of Christians do today. Really, I am convicted on this issue, big time. I am convicted on this issue. God is telling you to love. And so here you, here you see there are no righteous people. Nobody could be righteous. Here's the difference, though. You see, when God looks at us as saved Christians, God sees us through the filtering lens of Jesus Christ. That means he sees us as righteous because we've accepted Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ has flown over our bodies and we are saved. Are you righteous? No, you are not. And he will spend the rest of your life conforming you to Christ. He will be making you better. Things that you go through, trials and tribulations and health issues, all of these things together are combining to make you more godly until the day that we put dirt on you, all right? Then the work is done. And so that's the point. That's what Jesus is teaching here. There, is, there are no righteous people, all right? And Jesus is saying that God himself, God himself rejoices over the return of one. Return of one. What a great picture this is when we see our God. And so now in the second parable, the second parable of the lost coin, uh, Jesus tells us a little more challenging story. And we need to understand in order to get a good picture about this, about what a typical home would have looked like during that first century. Uh, and so I want you to get a picture of this. It would have been built of stone. Um, and it would have had hardly any windows, very tiny windows. There was no glass. And it would be on a narrow street. The street probably wouldn't have been wider than about eight feet. And the homes would be built right next to each other, close to each other. Um, and, and so the floors would be made of stone, and there would be large gaps in the floors because of the stones. And it, in these gaps, it would be very easy for a coin to fall and be lost. So I want you to get that picture as you see what this story is about. And so this house that Jesus talks about belongs to an ordinary woman who truly values her money. The coin is worth a day's wages. 
Uh, so it is a substantial loss to her, especially during that period of time. So to find the missing coin, to find the missing coin, she has to light a lamp, she has to sweep the house and look carefully, either stoop down on the floor or on her hands and knees going along a stone floor. Your knees hurt. You're in pain. It's not easy to do this. You can't find things. And in the cracks of the stones, there all finds all kinds of debris. And finally, in this process, this elaborate process of looking for the lost and embracing the lost, finally, she finds this stone, this coin, this precious coin. And so what happens? She celebrates. She calls her friends. She has a party. And, and, and Jesus adds that the commentary that God and his angels rejoice whenever a single sinner repents. How about that? That's your God. He is rejoicing along with the angelic hosts when one sinner repents. And so how do these people listening to these stories, how do they respond? What's their impression? How does it vary? Well, it varies based on their perspective. Uh, the tax collectors and the sinners would hear this story gladly, for it assures them that once more that God will go to great lengths to bring them to salvation. God will find them. Their sins will not be counted against them. When they repent and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, their sins are removed from the east and as far as the east is from the west. And so the sinners would hear this story and would recognize the first thing they had to do is repent. You have to repent. You can't stay in your sin. You come across the love of God, you can't stay in the trench. You got to get out of the trench. God will pull you out of the trench. You have to repent and tell God, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I accept Jesus. I will follow you, Lord. And, and so uh, that's the point. It requires repentance. Now, why do so many Christians have a problem with practicing this command? What is it? Uh, and so we need to go back to the very foundational principles uh, in the Bible. And so what we have to understand is this. God has created us in his image. We, in some ways, look like the very image of God. And so if that's the case, if we have been created in the image and in the likeness of God, then we have to recognize that we have to go out and love those people created in that image who may not be godly. That's the lesson, who may not be godly. I hope right now you are being convicted. I hope right now you're reflecting on people that you know or may have come across your radar and maybe you didn't do anything. Maybe you left them alone. Maybe some of you even uh, eschewed them and had them removed from your presence. And I'm telling you now, God is speaking to you right now about that. And I hope that you really are reflecting about this. The question remains to some other people, can we continue to affirm human dignity when it is horribly defaced by sin? That's the issue, isn't it? That's what you will hear some leadership in some churches say. Well, we can't go out and embrace all these people because they are deeply, deeply embedded in sin, that the human condition has been defaced by sin. Well, we'll take a look, if you would, to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, 
the moon, and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim, the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That is the very essence of what I'm teaching you, that God created you just slightly lower than the angels. And so even those people who are caught up and lost in sin, you have to be mindful of the fact that this is exactly how they are, that they reflect the likeness of God. And so our job is to go out and find them, find the lost, embrace them, to show them the dignity and respect that Jesus would give them if Jesus was here. Because you are the hands and feet of Jesus. That's what these lessons are about. That's why I'm teaching this evangelism by Jesus. All right? This isn't, you're not taking a course where somebody else is giving you 10 things to do. There's no 10 things to do. The question becomes, what would Jesus do? He would love them. He would respect them. All right? He wouldn't honor the sin. He would honor the sinner. And so we have to constantly remember this idea that we are created in the very image of God. Uh, and so the apostle James reminds us of this fact also uh, about disrespecting anyone who was in the image of God. Turn to James chapter 3, verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bearing, uh, bearing olives or grapevine bear figs? Neither can salt spring produce fresh water. That's the point. The same tongue that we use to bless God is the same tongue that we use to curse others, to speak evil, to slander. Uh, and so James is instructing us that as uh, born-again Christians, as people who are, who are committed to serving Jesus Christ, who are looking to serve God, God, as I said to you in the beginning part of this uh, talk that I gave today, in which I told you that God loves you in the same way that he loves Jesus Christ, but that the caveat was he expected you to go out into the world and to love the lost and others in the same way he has loved you. Can you honestly get up here today as you walk and say, Lord, I feel that I am loving others as you have loved me? I can tell you flat out, I can't say that. I can't say that. I haven't lived my life like that. I want to live like that. I want to do that, but I can't say that I have. And so the first question you have to say right now is you have to say, Lord, help me. Help me, Father. Give me grace. Change my mindset. Change my perspective. Help me to see the lost the way you see the lost, Father. Help me to see the downcast in the way that you see the downcast. Help me, Father, to be able to remember what I used to look like. And what I really still look like, but for the grace of Jesus Christ. 
I mean, that's the point. We have this elevated image. Let me tell you something, folks. Don't go looking at Herb down the street. Don't go looking at that neighbor down the street. You look right back at Jesus Christ. And when you see Jesus Christ looking back at you, you are convicted and your face is in the dust. And so that's the essence of this lesson. And so uh, we we need to understand that if we are truly going to impact this world the way God wants us to impact this world, it's about love. It's about dignity. It is about respect. It is about reaching out in a way that most of us have never reached out about. And so now when something like that comes along your way, I hope you will stop and reflect. You'll see somebody who's lost. You'll see somebody that's downcast. It may be a homeless person. It may be somebody that's caught up in alcohol, all right? It may be somebody caught up in drugs. It may be somebody coming out of prison. Who knows what it is? Who knows who God is putting in front of you? And God is giving you an opportunity to reflect and change a life forever for the kingdom of God. Could you bring them here? I sure hope you do. I sure hope you do. Could you embrace them and help them and show them what it means to be saved? What it means to be sold out to Jesus? Could you act in the way that Jesus wants you to act? And so here, it's the essence of what it's about. Yes, this human race has fallen. Yes, it has fallen far from God. But for the grace of Jesus Christ, you are saved. You're going to heaven. You're saved forever. Jesus has held you in his hand. But now you want to give others. Jesus wants you to reach that message to people who have never heard it, who have no idea that God loves them in the way that I told you that he loves them. They haven't heard that before. Well, now you can go and tell them that. You can give that message of hope and dignity and respect to somebody who has never heard it before. And you can give it to them. And I hope you give it to them. And when you do that, suddenly, suddenly, these people who are sitting in the mud, all right, full of sin, can see a hopeful way out. And you have reached out to them and done what God has wanted you to do. And then you leave the rest to Jesus because you're not saving anybody. All you're doing is giving the message of hope. And then you let the Holy Spirit work and let the Holy Spirit touch and revive people. That's our job. That's our lesson. That's how we live our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this message. I thank you for the lesson that you've given us today. I thank you for these parables, Lord, that speak so profoundly to our hearts as to how Jesus views the lost. My prayer today is that not one man leaves this presence today without changing forever the way that they view the lost, that they will go out into a world and embrace these people with dignity and respect and bring them into the presence of God, into the community of believers. Bless our people, protect them this week, and bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.